Hello and welcome back to the Replatform Podcast. It's myself, James, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Paul. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you? Yes, not bad. Uh, as we just discussed before recording this, uh, Wi-Fi fun as usual. It seems to be like the perennial problem in lockdown, but no, all good. Looking forward to today's episode. So, um, would you like to to do the intro? I know that that, that you've worked with uh, our guests today, so it makes sense if you introduce them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So today we're joined by David Cohn from Heels. Um, and yeah, as you say, David and I have worked together um, a couple of times over the last few years. And I've uh, I've kind of uh, drawn on David's experiences around some of the topics we're discussing today and retail in general. Um, yeah, well, over those kind of couple of years, I've known him. Um, yeah. So thanks for joining us, David. And do you want to do a bit of an introduction into you, kind of your background and then also Heels? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, I would describe myself as a grizzled retail veteran. Uh, I started in retail first time back in 1989, so I think that makes it 32 years so far. I've worked for a number of well-known high street names, some of which are no longer with us, started with Woolworths. Uh, but I've also worked for companies like WH Smith, for Waterstones, for Snow and Rock, uh, and for the Black's Leisure Group. Um, my background covers strategy. I was uh, on the commercial side for a long time looking after products. I was head of nonfiction books, for example, for WH Smith. I was the buying director for Borders Bookstores. But for the last 10 years plus, I focused on e-commerce. Uh, I saw really that that was the way that the market was going and wanted to specialize in it. And that's what I've done for three or four companies over the last few years. I joined Heels five years ago, um, literally just about to celebrate my fifth anniversary and have been trying to develop e-commerce uh, amongst other things. Uh, it's quite a small business, so I also look after customer service. I also look after marketing. But my primary concern has been trying to drive our digital business. I, w- I won't use the term digital transformation, but I'm in charge of our digital business. Brilliant. And um, so I asked David um, to come on today. So partly to talk about um, Heels' um, Magento 2 migration, which is happening at the moment. And we'll ask a number of questions around that, um, but also to kind of draw on his experiences of kind of adapting to COVID and to talk a bit more about kind of multi-channel and some of the stuff that they've done over the last couple of years to improve that kind of customer experience. Um, so I'll ask the first question. So, David, Heels is best known, or I would say, especially for me, Heels is best known for the flagship store on Tottenham Court Road. Um, Obviously, with everything that's going on, I'd imagine the business has been through a lot of change um, and there's a lot more reliance on online or digital. Um, Can you talk us through kind of how Heels has adapted and, yeah, a little bit more on this kind of shift around COVID? Yes, It's no secret that retail football has been struggling for some years now, and that's affected us in much the same way it's affected many other retailers. So we've managed to maintain ourselves in our high street stores, particularly the Tottenham Court Road store, but but it is a relentless struggle. And clearly that struggle has been significantly more difficult with COVID, not least because we've had the store shut for about four months in, in the various periods. We've progressively been trying to move to what we call a digital first model, um, whereby 
we focus a lot more on digital marketing and we also focus more on the digital sales channel. And pre-COVID, we got the website to a point where it was accounting for just over a third of the company's total sales. And if you added that to our telesales operation, which also sits within me, we were probably closer to 40%. Now, clearly, COVID has completely changed things. Um, and what we've seen is a massive growth in our online business, whilst at the same time seeing an almost equally massive decline in our store business. Clearly, having stores shut is not conducive to making sales in those shops, although we still managed to turn over a few sales. So what we've seen is steady, modest growth, I'd say double digits, but not the treble digit growth for the last four or five years. But in the last nine months since COVID struck, we've been pretty well pushing close to 100% digital growth. And actually, with the residual sales we've been able to make in stores, that's left us with a pretty decent overall trading performance. Excellent. Thanks for sharing. And um, so, as Paul said in the intro, you're currently replatformed to Magento too. What would be really interesting for our listeners is, can you pick out some of the key things you've learned about the, the whole process of replatforming and any tips you can give to people who might be looking at doing a migration themselves? The context of our migration is one where we had something which was working pretty well. And in fact, that's been evidenced since COVID struck because the website has managed to cope with this massive increase in traffic and big increase in transaction volume and revenue. The experience that we've driven on Magenta One is pretty good. So we found it to be a good tool. But we felt with the cessation of support from Adobe, we really had to migrate. So we're not, the context is not one where we had to migrate because we wanted to revolutionize our customer experience. It's because we had to migrate almost because of circumstances outside of our control. So what that's meant is we haven't looked at the migration as being an opportunity to introduce lots and lots of new things. There will be some companies that are looking at migration thinking, we really have to transform everything. But for us, that simply wasn't necessary. So we've been able to take a lot of the things that we are doing and simply migrate them as is, while trying to pick off a small number of areas where we could significantly improve the experience. My recommendation for anybody doing a migration, unless you are in desperate straits with your current platform, is to follow a similar pattern. Do not try and change everything. Unless your business model is broken, unless your website model is broken, try and change as little as possible because that will take an awful lot of complexity out of it. We'll also take an awful lot of risk out of it. Yeah, I, I think that's that's brilliant advice. The whole MVP and phasing approach of of get get stable and performant and protect your core business um, before you start adding in the additional bits. Uh, so going from Magento one to two uh, and looking at that, was there was there anything that surprised you about the maybe the uh, complexities of migrating from one to two, even though it's the same vendor? Yes, I think when we embarked upon this. 
although I knew that Magento 2 was a complete rebuild, I still thought there would be a number of elements that would be relatively straightforward. So, for example, one of the things that we did in the 12 months before we replatformed was we moved to a number of partners, of SaaS partners, plugins, where we knew there was a strong integration with Magento. That meant that we were able to practice, if you like, using those things. So, for example, we switched on Clayvooth on site search, we switched on Mosto on site recommendations. Both applications have a very strong integration with Magento. My assumption was that by doing that, we would significantly minimize the risk and complexity of moving. But I think the reality is that a movement from Magento 1 to Magento 2 is a complex piece. It's a complex and difficult piece. And things that work on Magento 1, whether it's the same plugin that you're going to put into Magento 2, don't necessarily work in the same way when you migrate them. So I think my basic piece of advice to people is don't underestimate how much effort is involved, even with the things that you think are going to be relatively simple. It's a different beast. It offers new opportunities, but it also offers plenty of development and integration challenges. Yeah, absolutely. I think James and I have both uh, seen that on projects uh, recently. And as you say, I think M1 to M2 is essentially, yeah, a big replatforming project and it's still like a massive technology project and needs to be kind of managed as such. Um, One of the areas that I've spoke to you a lot about in the past is SEO and kind of the best way to approach SEO and kind of the pros of potentially using a contractor versus an agency. Um, And then also I know when you migrated to Magento 1 initially, SEO was one of the things that uh, you might have approached differently. How have you... um, how have you kind of yeah approached this side of things with the Magento two migration? Like, how have you kind of uh, structured um, the team around it, and has it been something that you're kind of as focused on um, as we as it might suggest based on our conversations? Yes, I would say that SEO is almost been the primary focus of our risk mitigation program around the, the migration. Uh, a little bit of context here. We migrated from Vendor to Magento 1 just before I joined, about six months before I joined. And in doing so, managed to muck up the SEO to such an extent that we lost about 40% of our natural search traffic. I came into business and then spent an inordinate amount of time trying to rebuild that traffic through a variety of different measures. And then about 18 months ago, we started seeing another decline. So SEO has always been tremendously high on our agenda. And one of the principal reasons we selected M2 uh, to migrate from M1 was because it enabled us to retain much of the URL structure. And we saw that as being a significant uh, lower risk than migrating to another platform. But in terms of the way we run things, I've used a lot of agencies, and it's fair to say that I've sacked a lot of agencies in SEO. Uh, They promise a lot and generally fail to deliver. Um, So what we've done at Heels, we found an SEO consultant, a guy who seemed to have a broad knowledge in a range of different areas, but 
most importantly to us, would act as a member of our team and would be tremendously hands-on. There's no great reporting. There's no great bureaucracy that he has to go through with his boss. He works effectively as a member of our team. And he's achieved two incredible things for us. The first is that our performance on M1 has massively improved over the course of the last 12 months. We've gone from a position where we were well down to a position where we are now massively up. It's a complete reversal of our fortunes. And the second thing is he's been fastidious about what he wants to happen within M2. And he's communicated that constantly to the Pixel, who are our development team. We, we've put a massive priority on this. And I would say that anybody replatforming has SEO pretty well at the, at the top of their list. It, for me, it's almost more important than improving the user experience. Uh, if you lose, as we did, 40% of your organic traffic, uh, that, that can be catastrophic for your business. So you really must have it very high up your priority list. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, I do really like that approach of having like more of a contractor that's kind of really embedded into the business and kind of talking to different teams and has more kind of context around the scope of the project and all of that kind of stuff. I think um, I've certainly seen that work well in the past. Um, so you talked a bit earlier about kind of some of the uh, changes you made to M1 uh, prior to starting the M2 migration. Uh, so one of those being integrating a new search provider, a new personalization provider. Um, and then you also, I know you uh, made some changes to the design. Um, and I know one of the goals was to then simplify the scope of the migration, which I always uh, think is a really good uh, route or yeah, route to go down. Um, has it simplified uh, things for the project and ultimately your team? I alluded before to the fact that there are still complications and complexities, but there's no doubt that it has simplified things and will certainly simplify things post-migration. So as well as uh, Clavu Nosto, we also introduced a new checkout provider. We also introduced a new interest-free credit provider. We really tried to get all of our significant partner changes in place before the migration. And I think it works for the Pixel because they get a better knowledge of how these different bits of technology work. And it also works for us because we get a better idea of how they work and what we've got to do. So when we do migrate, we'll certainly be fully up to speed with how the back ends of these things work, what we can do to manipulate them, whether it's the search pages or the merch pages or the recommendations. Uh, and I'm sure for all of my concern about the complexity that it will have made things a lot easier for, for the pixel. So again, many people would do things in a different way, but I'm convinced that by making those partner changes, those plugin changes, Prior to migration, we've made life easier. And again, we've taken risk out of the equation. And you've mentioned uh, some, some third parties that introduced, and I know uh, that you're working with Cylindo, probably um, one of the most important given the, the um, furniture and, and 3D render and visualization challenges. How has that solution helped from a customer experience point of view? It'd be useful to hear your perspective on that. Issue that we had before we had Cylindo was we didn't have any way of representing to the customer in any reasonable way what 
an upholstery product would look like with the fabric that you had selected as a customer. We effectively had a, a drawing, a three, uh, um, a pencil drawing, and a swatch alongside it. So for the sale of sofas and some of our upholstered beds, it was essential for us that we had something which would enable the customer to see what that product would look like. It's also an engaging, involving experience for the customer. It's, it's fun, actually, applying different fabrics to different products. It's fun spinning them around, focusing in on them. Cylindro offers incredible um, magnification um, functionality so that you can really get into the fabric, even though... In many cases, Cylindro actually is working off a photograph. It is able to produce very, very high-definition photorealistic imagery. So for the sale of sofas, for the sale of our other upholstered products, it's essential. And I think any retailer that's in our market that isn't doing something similar um, is missing a massive trick. Um, whether there are wider applications of it is something we're constantly looking at. We have played with augmented reality. We've taken a little bit of a look at some room planning tools. I think as yet, the market and the customer isn't, isn't ready for those things. Um, some of our bigger competitors like Made or IKEA are experimenting more widely, but I'm not convinced yet that customers have the appetite and the patience to, to deal with these tools. But the 3D photorealistic functionality uh, and the renders, I would say, they're, they're simply essential to our customer experience. Excellent. So, yeah, you, you talked about, interesting, we had a question about some of the other features you might try out with Cylindro. So you talked about having played around with the AR, but not being convinced the customers are ready. What, what is it you don't think they're ready for then? Is it just that people aren't using it or it's it's too complicated for them to use without know, a guided experience? We created a very simple AR experience, which didn't require an app. It literally worked out, out of the browser. I think as yet, the customer experience is not good enough. Uh, the ability to render the products in the right scale to what you're looking at is, it's not good enough at this point. Um, and of course, if you're looking to see whether a sofa will fit, you've probably already got a sofa there as well. So you're, you're overlaying one image over the, the real image that you see in front of you. So I I don't I don't know you know I'm an I'm I'm an old man so a lot of this technology I sort of can take it or leave it I think what I have seen over the many years I've been in e-commerce is a lot of gimmicks a lot of things that everybody thinks are oh, everybody will be using this in two years time I thought that myself I thought everybody would be on AR by 2019 then it was 2020 I thought everybody would be on VR. The evidence is that they're not. And actually, people want the simplest possible experience. Yes, they're happy to play around with the fabrics. They're happy to look at things in 3D and spin them around. But I'm not sure there's an appetite yet for people to use AR. There probably will be. It's probably something that will come. 
But the evidence that we've had from having it on the website is customers aren't that bothered. That makes sense. And uh, yeah, in- interesting um, Yeah, discussion point that I think we could probably do a whole episode on that. Um, great, but I'll ask the next question anyway. Um, so something that James and I have had a number of conversations around on the podcast recently and also the YouTube channel um, is pop-ups and overlays and kind of the role they can play um, for different types of retailers and at kind of different points of the journey. Um, and I know James has done a lot around this area in the past. Um, and from talking to you in the past, you're probably um, one of the, I guess, few luxury brands that I think are really doing this well and really trying to get the most out of pop-ups and I know you've used a few different vendors um how how has this kind of worked for heels and what are you doing at the moment with pop-ups there are two fundamental angles to this the first is that we are selling generally high consideration products and with high consideration products there are potentially a significant number of phases to the purchase journey And so one of the key things that we want to do at all times is to try and get people to progress through the purchase journey. If they've been on the homepage, you want them to visit the category page. If they've been on a listing page, you want them to visit a product page. If they've been on a product page, you want them to visit uh, the basket. And if they're in the basket, you want them to check out. We're constantly looking at how we can progress people through the journey. And of course, that journey is complicated by the fact that it may involve multiple visits. So the premise that we will track the customer's journey, we'll try and understand their state of mind, we'll try and understand where they are in that journey, and we'll try and identify what we want them to do next or what we can help them to do next is a really important one. And so a lot of what we've done has been trying to understand where somebody is in their journey. If it's the fourth time they visited, what are we presenting with? If they've looked at 10 different products, if they've looked at delivery and returns for an awfully long period of time, it's trying to gauge where are they in their purchase journey and what are the questions they've still got? Can, can we answer those? So I think that's the first context I would put in this is for us, it's really important to understand what is often a quite long purchase journey. The second thing is, for me, a big question when you're buying higher ticket product, it's probably true for lower ticket product, but to a lesser extent, is reassurance. Um, When you're buying a sofa, when you're buying a dining table, you have a lot more questions than if you're buying a shirt or a pair of socks. Is this good enough quality? Will it fit? Does it really look as good as I think it does? Are they a reputable company? Will I get my money back if I don't like it? Um, Where is it made? Is it sustainable? There's a whole heap of questions that you want reassurance on. And so for me, the role of pop-ups is to try and understand what reassurance you want at the point in time that you are looking at the product or looking at the site. Um, As I said, if you've been looking at delivery and returns for a minute, maybe a pop-up that says, worried about delivery and returns, we deliver, we assemble, we take all of your uh, packaging away. If it's 
a branded product and you've been looking at it and maybe you look at the price um, or you're in that area of the site, it's maybe something that says we offer a brand price promise. You won't be able to find this cheaper anywhere else. And if you do, we'll refund the difference. So I think I think provide understanding the customer psychology, but with a with a real focus on providing them with reassurance. I think there's a tremendous role for pop-ups. I'm not a fan of loads and loads of promotional pop-ups. Uh, I think that's not in keeping with the Heels brand. But what I am a fan of is trying to help the customer understand what they're looking at to give them some prompts, to give them some reassurance, to try and progress them to the next stage of their purchase journey. Right. Um, and another third party that I know you were an early adopter of and something that everyone seems to be either talking about or implementing at the moment is Hero. Um, how has this performed for you? And also, how has the usage and value of it changed through COVID? Well, Hero is almost the centerpiece of our reassurance strategy. Yeah. We obviously can present a hyper-personalized experience in store because you're talking to somebody, they're asking you questions, you're telling them stuff, they're telling you stuff. So talking to a person is the most personalized experience that it's possible for you to have. And we know that when you're buying high-ticket products, as I say, you have a lot of questions. You, you know, we, we spend an inordinate amount of time looking at the content that we have on product pages. But number one, you can only put so much on. And number two is you know that most people won't read it. So what we've tried to do is to connect our online customers with the staff in our stores who are not only experts in product, but they're also passionate about it. So they can not only provide the reassurance, but they can also provide a little bit of excitement about the product. In terms of how well it's performed, it's been probably the single most successful thing I've done for Heels since I've been in the business. And that's both from a brand perspective and from a commercial perspective. From a brand perspective, I think it reinforces to any customer that engages with it the essence of Heels, which is that we provide great advice. We, we provide really good support and service. Um, from a commercial perspective, it's had a significant effect on online conversion, but in fact, it's had an even more significant effect in the stores because one of the unexpected side effects of Hero, when we started looking at the first transcripts, the phrase that we saw cropping up an awful lot was, why don't I give you a call? Now, our stores can take telephone orders. So... We found that rather than the conversion taking place online, a lot of the stores were thinking, hold on, this is an opportunity for me to drive some in-store sales. So we saw a significant proportion of chats ending up in an in-store sale. From my perspective, that's fantastic. Very happy about that. But we've seen over the last 12 months, we've probably seen an increase in hero usage that's commensurate with that of the traffic on the site. And we've seen the in-store sales have outnumbered the online sales. The stores absolutely love it. And I challenge anybody 
that tries it in working hours to see how long they've got to wait for somebody to to leap on them. COVID has really helped because we haven't furloughed our store teams. Uh, so we now have a team of about 40 people who are desperate to get on Hero um, and will fight each other for the chance to be the first person to talk to you. So um, it's been a fantastic success and it's been an even bigger success since COVID. That's really interesting. And um, a question in terms of how you use Hero. So you say you've got that kind of 40-person team. Um, and I know something that people that you can do with Hero and some other people have done is kind of like routing questions to different people based on department and stuff like that. Do you do anything like that? Or is it just a case of um, kind of just trying to get um, someone answering the question? When we started, we had five different routes, which were based on a broad category structure in the store. We found that that was a little too confusing for the customer. So we've now reduced that to two basic uh, elements of routing, which is furniture and homewares and lighting. Um, that's as much routing as we need to do at the volumes that we do. But it does mean that you will talk either to a furniture expert or to somebody that's an expert in homewares and lighting. Some of our staff will cover both areas because they know the, the product inside out. Um, I think if you were a more complex business, with John Lewis, for example, you'd certainly want to have more routes. But you have to balance usability for the customer with, um, with that sort of specialism, if you like. And, and yeah. we found having the five categories was too much and two was about right. Yeah, makes sense. I've got another client that are using it, that are doing it. So they've got quite specialist products um, and they're quite different. And you have like the concept of very different brands and things like that. And they've done it quite nicely with um, a few more kind of options. But I think their product definitely kind of lends itself to that more. Um Next, so my next question, or my last question, actually. Um, so something that I've, I've always really enjoyed talking to you about retail, and I think very few people have your kind of practical experience um, around multi-channel retail or some of the brands and retailers you've worked with. Um, what's your view on on how things are going to change post-COVID? Like, what do you, how do you see the roles um, of physical stores changing? I probably shouldn't say this uh, uh, as a representative of a business that has five stores and a, and a clearance store, but I think it will be tremendously difficult for bricks and mortar retail to survive and thrive in the post-COVID environment. Uh, I do not see for the foreseeable future any, let's say post-COVID, Retail traffic levels are not going to be what they were for an awfully long time. They may recover eventually, but you've taken a trend that was already declining and you've added something to it, which will never entirely go away. COVID is not entirely going to go away. People are always now, I think, in the future going to be a little cautious about traveling about large gatherings etc etc so i think it will be tremendously difficult for bricks and mortar retail to thrive in the future those that do thrive will have to offer something that you cannot get online um, and 
a lot of people talk about experience. I think it's it's overused. Yeah, the retail experience. Try and do something that's entertainment. Um, I think you've got to be a little more granular than that about what it is you're offering in the store environment. And I do think there are a number of things that, even if you can vaguely offer them online, are still significantly better in a store. First is sensory. Um, you can only hit a couple of the senses uh, when you're online, maybe um, visual and sound, but you can't touch and feel things. You don't have an environment around you. The second thing is serendipity. Uh, I genuinely think when you walk into a big store like ours, you see things that you would never see if you were browsing the website. Um, whatever technology people have come up with for recommendations, it, you know, same with Amazon and books. It's not the same as walking into a bookstore. You're, the human brain is attuned to look at a wide expanse and to pick out things that are of interest. And a website simply can't can't deliver that same experience. And the third thing I would say is is social. Um, there are still significant social elements to shopping, and there's a social element to the direct service interaction. So I think. You're going to have to think, is it sensory that you're offering? Is it social? Is it service? Um, is it serendipity? Um, you can't just do what you were doing before. Um, that's for sure. Um, if you don't offer something around those sorts of themes, you are, you are going to struggle. Um, the other side of things is that the whole cost equation is going to have to change. Um, the way that we judge the performance of a store is going to have to change. But there's no doubt that um, re rentals and, and cost structures will have to change because uh, the days of you know running a £10 million rent store on Oxford Street, it's just going to be impossible for most retailers to sustain those sorts of costs. So there will need to be a big correction in, in retail property. Uh, that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing the, your perspective. I, I like the point about, about being clear on what you what you are providing online. You, you know, just having products to sell might might be okay uh, for some people, but there's so much competition, and there's going to be increased competition going online as more people go online and more people launch e-commerce stores. That, that providing something that gives people a reason to use you and come back is definitely important. I guess this is why some of these third-party tools, the likes of Solindo, Hero, and there are obviously many others out there, are becoming more popular as a result of this. Yeah. Well, one, one thing I haven't really touched on, which I think is absolutely critical looking forward, is, is the importance of your brand, Yeah, what you stand for. Uh, to be a purveyor of other people's products, we've we've seen with Debenhams, we've seen with House of Fraser. To be a purveyor of other people's products is an unsustainable model now for anybody other than Amazon. Um, and so, a brand like Heels has really got to understand what it stands for. I think we have got a really clear understanding of what Heels is all about. It's about fantastic design. And great quality. Um, it's about creating a beautiful home that you that brings you happiness. But but one of the challenges that you have online, I think, that is less of a challenge in store is 
is putting that brand story, that brand message across. You know, as much as I like to think we've improved the website, arriving at a website is not the same as arriving at Heels Tottenham Court Road. Arriving at Heels Tottenham Court Road, it's it's a special experience. Um, And that's all part of the brand experience. So I think a big challenge for us uh, online, we've tried really hard with imagery, with uh, the way that we've updated the site, uh, to to create that great brand experience online, but it, but it's more difficult um, because you simply have fewer tools at your disposal. And also the the real estate you're dealing. With, I think one of the big m- mistakes that that some e-commerce teams make is trying to think they can recreate that experience. I think it's about understanding what experience means in a digital context and how you can enrich it rather for a customer rather than obsessing over making it feel the same as being in store. Because you're right, I mean, you have constraints that you'll never face in the physical store. But it's, it's a, I mean, this this is the topic we could uh, we could hive off into a separate discussion entirely. It's an interesting one. Indeed. I think we should get David back at some point and do uh, a multi-channel one. Yes, let's really do it. <laughs> um, but that's been really useful. I mean, David, thanks so much for your time and, and really interesting hearing your, your experience and perspectives on it. So um, that's covered all the questions. So again, thanks to everybody for listening as well and keep your ears open for the next episode. There's a new episode every week, so don't forget to subscribe and share everyone else who you think you'd be interested. If you want more kind of practical tips around like um, website optimization, we also have our Replatform TV channel on YouTube. Um, so, David, thanks very much. Thank you.